Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray as we turn our attention now to God's word, shall we? Bow your heads with me. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you this morning for your word, Lord, that we have just read and the word that we are seeking to memorize and the word that we are going to hear preached now. And Lord, we just ask and pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit to hear from you today. Lord, we know that no good will come apart from the work of your Spirit, and so that's what we pray for. That's what we ask for. We pray that you would work now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, who here has been uh, watching the Olympics? I don't really watch sports too much, but I really enjoy the Olympics. I like the Olympics because I think it's just really fun to watch people from all over the world competing against each other in all kinds of different sports. Now, these people who are competing, they have trained for years to become the best athletes in the world in their particular sport, whatever it is. They've given their lives to this. This has become their whole world, and they're competing to win a medal. But really, they're not just competing for a medal. They're competing for honor. They're competing for honor for themselves and for their country. So I always think it's really cool whenever the Olympic athlete turns then and gives glory to God. So this is Cindy McLaughlin. She won the women's 400-meter hurdles She finished with a time of 51.46 seconds. She set uh, the world record, breaking the world record that she herself had set just a couple of months earlier in June, which is pretty cool. She's one of of only two women to ever run the 400-meter hurdles in less than 52 seconds. So it's a great accomplishment for her. And after she won the gold... She said, I think the biggest difference this year is my faith, trusting God, trusting that process, and knowing that he's in control of everything. As long as I put the hard work in, he's going to carry me through, and I really cannot do anything more but give the glory to him at this point. Now, that's not new for her. After she broke the record in June, a few months ago, this is what She said, she said, I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. I don't deserve anything, but by grace, through faith, Jesus has given me everything. Records come and go. The glory of God is eternal. Thank you, Father. In November of 2020, just less than a year ago, she recorded a video of her, of her baptism, and she posted it on Instagram, and, and this is what she wrote. She wrote, for 21 years, I was running from the greatest gift I could ever receive, and by his grace, I have been saved. I no longer live, but Christ in me. My past has been made clean because of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it seems like The Lord Jesus redeemed her, grabbed hold of her heart, and she's been living for the glory of God ever since. 
But it's not just the Sarah McLaughlin's of the world. It's not just for famous people. It's every Christian's responsibility to bring glory to God in everything that they say and do. And we lift up Olympic champions when when, when they glorify God because they've got this huge platform and we love that the message gets out. There's nothing wrong with that. But the size of the platform doesn't matter. All that matters is we do our part using whatever platform God has given to us to bring glory to him, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's one of Peter's primary strategies for Christians who are living in a hostile world, that our lives in word and in deed would bring glory to God. And that's the message for us today. Live for the glory of God as his treasured people. God has made you his own so that you would make him known. Can you say that with me? God has made you his own so that you would make him known. That's the message. We glorify God, Peter's going to show us, in primarily two ways. In our words and our works, what we say and what we do. You see, you and I are in a glory war. The question is, will we live for ourselves or God? Will we live to glorify ourselves or God? Will we make life all about us or all about God? Now, as Christians, we already know the answer. Life's not about us. It remains for us, then, to put this into practice, to walk this out in our life, to learn to live for the glory of God alone. So before we jump into our text, let me just give a quick overview of the passage. The the text splits into two parts, and in each part, there's a purpose clause. In verses 9 and 10, it's so that you might proclaim God's excellencies. I'm sorry, I didn't tell you, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Turn there in your Bibles, that's our text for today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Part 1, 9 through 10, purpose clause, so that you might proclaim God's excellencies. Then in verses 11 and 12, it's so that when they revile you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So the first deals with our words, proclaiming God's glory and grateful praise. And the second deals with our works, living in such a way that our conduct glorifies God and leads even our opponents even our opponents, to glorify him. Peter is going to continue to explain how disciples are supposed to live in a hostile world, in a world that rejects their God, their message, and therefore rejects them. Our purpose is to live to bring glory to God in whatever we do and whatever we face in a hostile world. And the first way we glorify God is with our words proclaim God's excellencies for making you his own. We see this in verses 9 through 10. Look there with me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, 
But now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. The reason that God created a people is so that they would proclaim his glory. God has made you his own so that you would make him known. Of course, you have to see the wonder of what God has done for you before you're going to proclaim his excellencies. At first, God made you his own, a people for his own possession, it says in verse 9. Once you weren't a people, but now you are God's people, verse 10. And Peter's going to say five things about believers, in contrast to non-believers who have rejected Jesus, verses 7 and 8. You remember we've been talking about Jesus is the, the stone. We talked about that last week. Pastor Jonathan was talking about that. Everyone is going to encounter this stone. Either Jesus is going to be the cornerstone on whom you build your whole life, or he's going to be a stumbling stone and a rock of offense over whom your life will be broken. Jesus is either going to be for you a deliverer or your downfall, depending on your faith in him or your rejection of him. So Peter says five things about Christians. Let's look at this. First, you are a chosen race. The church is a chosen race. Now, the chosen race isn't based on race at all. This isn't about black, white, brown, yellow. This is the, the chosen race is a new people made up of people from all over the world, people of all different colors and cultures around the world. The answer to racism is the gospel. Because in Christ, God unifies all peoples in himself. Who am I? I'm chosen by God. That's your identity. Chosen by God's undeserved grace. You're not chosen for any merit, any good works in you. You're chosen by God's grace. You're not chosen because you're special. You're special because you're chosen. Second, you are a royal priesthood. This means you have direct access to God anytime. In the Old Testament, only the high priest could go into the very presence of God and then just one time of year. But you've got the all-access pass through Jesus. We were down in Hilton Head, and we were biking around. We rented those terrible bikes you know, with the giant... You know, everybody looks like a fool riding these things. So we're riding our bikes around Hilton Head, and we came up to this gated community where you could only get in if you had a home in that neighborhood. In fact, they won't even let you bike there. They've got like a gate across the sidewalk. And so we come up to this. We can't, we can't go any further. Jesus is your entrance code. He opens the gate to heaven. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. He gives you a home there, John 14, 3, and he welcomes you in. You've got direct access to God through Jesus Christ. But being a part of the priesthood of believers means more. It also means that you have this, this priestly role to play uh, where you offer spiritual sacrifices to God. We saw that in verse 5. Not, not literal sacrifices, of course, because Jesus already made the, the perfect and final sacrifice for sin. So what are spiritual sacrifices? Well, praise and thanksgiving for sure, obedience and, and good works, loving and serving and praying for other people. Everything that you do that pleases God is 
a spiritual sacrifice. That's why Paul says to offer your entire life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship, Romans 12, 1. So who am I? I'm a part of a royal priesthood that serves and worships God. Third, you are a holy nation. The church is a nation. It's a nation, but it's not based on any ethnic identity or geography or national borders. It's based solely on our shared allegiance to our king, Jesus. Amen? We're all citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and there's only one border crossing. Jesus is the way. And the gates open to all who trust in him as their savior and submit to him as their king. It's a holy nation. That means we're set apart for God. You and I exist for God, for him. We exist to love him and live for him. So who am I? I'm part of a holy nation. Fourth, he says, you're a people for his own possession. You're his treasured possession. Once you were separated from Christ, and because of that, you were without hope, without God, without his favor, Ephesians 2.12. You were God's enemy, Romans 5.10. But now you've been brought near and made a part of this this people of God. So, So who am I? I'm God's treasured possession. I'm part of God's people. You're going to dwell in the presence of God as his people forever, Revelation 21.3. And finally, Peter says, you have received mercy. Oh, who am I? I've been shown mercy when what I deserved was wrath. You are the object of God's special concern. In your need for salvation, God has stepped in to rescue. In your need for strength, God daily bears you up. In your need for wisdom, God directs you by his word. In your need for sanctification, God gives you his transforming grace and the power of his Holy Spirit. In your need for love, God has adopted you into his family and has made you his beloved child. Oh, dear church, in all of your needs, you are the recipient of God's mercy. God has not left you to your own strength and wisdom and resources He supplies all that you need for life and godliness, so you don't need to look horizontally for what you already possess in Jesus Christ. That's who you are. That's your identity as a Christian, as the church. Now, I need to pause here for a minute and and just comment that what Peter is doing here is he's, he's picking up all these, these titles and these blessings that, that described Israel in the Old Testament, and he's applying them to the church. So he quotes Exodus 19, 5 and 6, and Isaiah 43, 20 and 21 in these verses, which are about Israel, and he applies it to the church. It's Christians who are God's chosen people, no longer the descendants of Abraham. It's Christians who are God's priests, no longer the descendants of Aaron. It's Christians who are the holy nation, no longer ethnic Israel. God's promises to Israel are being fulfilled in the church. So in verse 10, Peter alludes to the words of the prophet Hosea twice, and he sees these promises to Israel as fulfilled in the church. Once you weren't a people, but now you're my people, right? Once you had not received mercy, Now you have received mercy. 
That's what Hosea said about Israel. Peter says, that's you, Christian. That's you in the church. So then when we get to verse 12, Peter calls non-believers Gentiles. Why does he call them Gentiles? It's not because he thinks that everyone in the church is a Jew. It's because Christians, whether they're Jew or Gentile, are the true Israel. And those who are without Christ, whoever they are, Jew or Gentile, are the true Gentiles. You see, what God began when he created a people for himself with Adam and Eve, and when he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in taking Israel for his own possession, he now does through Christ for all who will believe. Christians are the people of God. The church is the true Israel. And Peter, he is anchoring Christians deeply in their identity. Why is our identity so important? I'm really glad you asked that question. Every one of us is looking for identity, for significance, for meaning, and there's really only two places to look for it. We will either get our identity vertically from who we are in Christ, or we will look horizontally for it in the things of this world. We might look for our job, to it for our, for, to our job or to, to wealth or success, whether it's school or sports or career. We might look to our spouse or to our kids, our family. Uh, that's an incredible burden that they shouldn't have to bear when we're looking to our family for our identity. Increasingly in our culture, people are looking to their sexuality to define their identity, who they are. The problem is, is that these created things were not made to give you your identity. We, we're, we end up looking horizontally for something that we were meant to find in God. Is the questions, these questions of identity and meaning and purpose, they are central, they are core to our worldview. Who am I? Why am I here? What is life about? What's my meaning? What's, what's my purpose for living? And we all, all of us, answer those questions. I'm telling you right now, you have an answer to those questions. Whether you've thought about it or not, you have answered these questions, and it is shaping how you live your life. This is why identity is so important, why Peter wants to anchor them because being grounded in who we are is so crucial to staying faithful to God. So while we were on vacation, uh, we stopped off in Tennessee, and we saw some old friends there in Tennessee that we hadn't seen in 10 years. It was so fun to connect with them. We, we just picked up right where we left off. These were good friends of ours, and they live in Knoxville now, and so we went and we stopped and said hi. And, and while we were spending time with them, we got to talking about uh, parenting and about discipling our children, and this topic of family mission came up. And my friend was telling us that, that their family mission statement is this. It's all about Jesus. Short simple, it's easy to remember, it's all about Jesus. They've got it hanging on their wall as a constant reminder, and they were telling us how they're, they're constantly trying to, to get their kids to, to, to grab hold of this, to internalize this, so that this becomes the grid through which they filter all of their decisions, so that when they're out with their friends, or someday when they're out on their own, and the temptation to sin comes, they say, oh no, no, no. 
I'm not going to do that because I'm a Tullus, and for me, it's all about Jesus. And Jesus wants me to save myself for marriage, or Jesus wants, doesn't want me to, to, to set any worthless thing before my eyes, or Jesus doesn't want me to gossip, so I'm not going to be part of this conversation, or Jesus wants me to serve others, so I'm going to go on this missions trip. Jesus wants me to, to share my faith, so I'm going to tell people about him. It, it, whatever it is, whatever the decision, it's all about Jesus. They're trying to anchor them in their identity, not just as a Tullus, but as a Christian. It's all about Jesus. Do you see? Our identity is important because it shapes how we live. But Peter gets more specific here. Look again at verse 9. Why did God give us this identity? Why did God make you a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and his treasure? Why did he do that? Was it just for your joy? You're good? No, look at verse 9. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see? God created a people so that they would proclaim his glory. God made you his own so that you would make him known. God called you out of darkness so you would declare his praises. Who he is, and what he's done, especially what he's done in Christ to save us. Oh, that we would say with the psalmist, may those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. If you love his salvation, that you would say forever, God is great. We proclaim him whenever we worship him, whenever, we, whenever you give him thanks and praise. When you pray, when you sing, whether it's here at church or at home, when you, when you give him thanks and praise, you're proclaiming him. You proclaim him when you tell God's stories, what God has done in your life. You proclaim him when you share the gospel, spreading the good news of what God has done in Christ to all peoples. Now, worship and evangelism are things that can be hard to do when you're being persecuted for your faith. And think about it. We might not feel like worshiping God if we're suffering. We might be afraid to gather to worship God. We might be afraid to share our faith if we know that it's going to bring opposition or persecution. You see, in a hostile culture, we are tempted to be silent. But that defeats the purpose. So Peter reminds disciples of who they are and why they exist. God made you his own so that you would make him known. Like the Fiji men's rugby team after they won gold. These guys are awesome. They got on their knees and prayed to God, giving him thanks. And then they stood and sang a hymn of praise on the field. This one's unique because it's not just one person. It's a whole team corporately praising God together. A part of the song says, we have overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of the Lord, we have overcome. They're singing this, y'all. They did the exact same thing in 2016 when they won the gold. In fact, they pray and sing together both before and after every game, win or lose. In a moment of, of glory for what they accomplished, they chose to focus on the glory of Jesus for what he accomplished. 
They're proclaiming the excellencies of God who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You're in a glory war. And every situation that you face is a battle for what glory is going to shape your life. The glory of God or the glory of earthly things. I love what Paul Tripp says. I also love how Paul Tripp looks. I mean, he just pulls this off. I, he's such a stud. But I love what he says here. He says, our generation must be committed to commend God's works to the next generation so that they might be rescued by and motivated by a glory bigger than the typical catalog of glories that they would choose for themselves. We need to make sure that the next generation is so captivated by the glory of God that they don't settle for the glories of this world. I love that. So what glory are you living for? Who are you living for? Does your life direct attention to the glory of God? How do you grow in giving God glory? Well, first, let me suggest a couple ways here. First, look at what God's done for you, okay? Don't lose your awe of God. Look at what God has done and meditate on that. Don't let your heart grow cold to the awesome truths of our faith. Amen? Because declaring God's excellencies flows naturally from a heart and mind that is in awe of who God is and what he has done. That's the key. Second, tell God stories. I love God stories. We need to tell more God stories in this church. We need to tell God stories all the time. This is a story of what God is doing in your life, what he has done in the past or what he's doing right now. What's God doing in your life? See, when we don't tell God stories, we rob God of his glory. God wants those stories told so that he can get glory. So tell God stories. You see, you and I were made to worship, and we are going to spend our lives declaring the worth of something. Let's live our lives declaring that it's God, that it's Christ. So glorify God in your words. The second way we glorify him is in our works. You keep your conduct honorable so that the Gentiles will glorify God. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Look there with me. Peter says, beloved. Oh, isn't that a loaded word now based on the five things that we just saw? Hopefully you won't ever read that word again the same way. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's worth repeating here that how we live, verses 11 and 12, is rooted in who we are, verses 9 and 10. There are two commands here. The first is abstain from the passions of your flesh. The second is keep your conduct honorable. So in this war, this glory war for who's going to be glorified, I want you to notice that this is first a battle of desires and then a battle of behavior. Don't just polish the outside of the dish. Man, when I wash dishes, I, this is confession time. 
I spend most of my time on the inside of the dish, cleaning it, and I'm going to be real. I just give the outside like a quick once over. I'm not sure if that's how you're supposed to do it, but I figure all the dirty was on the inside, so I might as well just scrub that good and then just flip it over and right? I was going to like, I didn't have the forethought to like let a dish sit out and get dirty and moldy for an object lesson. I should have. I wasn't planning that far ahead. But I think in the Christian life, we do the exact opposite. We actually spend most of our time cleaning the outside of the dish. Very little time cleaning the inside of the dish. We want to put on a good face, but our, our first battle as exiles is to cultivate godly desires. The desire of our hearts and minds is supposed to be set apart, distinct from the world. So, so we don't our desires aren't informed by TV, they're informed by God's word. Sin is more than just breaking God's rule. It's first and foremost about rebellion against God himself. It's a desire to have for myself the glory that is due to him. Just think about Adam and Eve. They didn't disobey because they were ignorant of God's command. They only had one command. They knew the command. Their problem was their heart's desire. They wanted to be like God. The battle in the garden was first fought in their hearts. Our hearts need to be changed so we will change the way that we live. So we cultivate a heart that loves God or loves what God loves and hates what God hates. The command to abstain from the passions of the flesh implies that Christians, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have the power to restrain their desires. Our desires are not uncontrollable, but can be restrained. And healthy, God-honoring desires can be nurtured and cultivated. That is a much-needed rebuke in a culture that puts so much emphasis on feelings. A person's feelings are this unquestionable standard of what's morally good. If it makes me feel good, it is good. That's the mantra of our age, and it's garbage. It's total garbage. When you say someone's feelings or desires are wrong, then you get strong backlash. So we need to cultivate a heart that loves what God loves, hates what God hates. The reason to abstain from sinful passions is because they wage war against your soul. They seek to conquer you, but you have to resist and conquer them. War is costly. War is devastating. Don't be tricked into thinking that you can disobey God without damaging your soul. Giving into the desires of the flesh does spiritual damage. Now, it might keep you from Christ entirely. That's the worst case scenario. You gain the world, but you forfeit your soul. But genuine Christians also fight the passions of the flesh. And when we give way to them, there are casualties. We become spiritually weak and ineffective. 2 Peter 1.8 It robs us of peace and joy and contentment. Not to mention the collateral damage of broken relationships and broken marriages and broken families and how it tarnishes the reputation of God. So abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. And the second command is keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Your conduct means your whole way of life, everything that you do. You're to live honorably, morally good. Avoid evil, pursue good according to the truth of his word. Now, when we live according to God's ways, it's no guarantee that people are going to like you. 
Peter is not saying, be nice and people will like you. He's saying, be godly and people will hate you. Let me say that again. Peter is not telling Christians, just be nice and people will like you. He's saying, be godly, but be prepared because people will hate you. Look what he says. God's people will be spoken against as evildoers for living in the truth. In fact, it's because the Christians avoided sinful conduct that the pagans hated them, chapter 4, verse 4. Unbelievers are going to call us evildoers because we won't do the things that they do and we will do what God calls us to do. We see this in our culture all the time. When a Christian stands up for biblical marriage as God defines it, he's called a hateful bigot, a homophobe. When a Christian stands up for the biblical definition of men and women and their roles, he's called a misogynist, a sexist, or transphobic. When a Christian stands up for biblical anthropology of human identity and race, he's called a racist. Don't be surprised when non-believers speak against you as an evildoer. It's inevitable. It's not because you're mean, but because you don't share their worldview, their morals, their values. You live according to the truth of God's word. Now, we stand for truth in a godly way. But even if you stand for truth in a godly way, a God-honoring way, even if that part of your conduct is honorable, as Peter is calling us, even if you do it all right, you're still going to be reviled. People will still speak against you as an evildoer. Let me give you an example, a concrete example. I came across this this week listening to a talk by Vodi Bakum. He referenced a standard textbook being used to train teachers. It's called Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice. Now, if you're familiar with critical theory and the terminology that it uses, then you're going to recognize some of it here. For those of you who don't, critical theory is an ideology that's... It's, critical theory is the father of things like critical race theory and intersectionality and identity politics and, and things like that. It sees all people in one of two categories, either oppressed or oppressor. Here's a chart listing the oppressors. Just go down the list and you can see the oppressors here. You got white people, biological males, cisgender people, that's people who, who live in alignment with their biological gender. Uh, you've got able-bodied people, but I want you to notice this one right here. Protestant Christians. Christians are in the oppressor category. Critical theory teaches that oppression, like these oppressors, they oppress people through what they call hegemonic power. What, what is that? It's the ability of a dominant group to impose its values and its norms and ex expectations on society. So they're saying like Christians are an oppressive group because we've been able to uh, put our values and norms and expectations on society. Now, the, the crazy part and the dangerous part about critical theory is that its goal is to dismantle uh, oppressive groups, to, to free the oppressed from their oppressors, dismantling structures and norms that keep them oppressed. And Christianity is on that list. Now, I want, with that, I want you to listen to this quote from this book, Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, as it relates to Christianity. Quote, There are many ways in which minority religions are affected by the ignorance, obliviousness, 
misguided intentions, and harassment by hegemonic majority. He's talking about Protestant Christians here, Christians. One form is the experience by non-Christians of Christian evangelism. That is the assumption that that is the assumption by some Christians that it's their responsibility to bring the truth to so-called non-believers. Proselytizing shades into religious oppression when the person being proselytized experiences it as an act of harassment and as an assault on the legitimacy of their own religion. Now, I want you to notice then, evangelism is called a form of oppression. And it's labeled an assault, which is super strong language, based solely on the person's subjective feelings. In other words, I was offended and I experienced that as harassment, therefore you're oppressing me. Now this book is saying that evangelism is a form of oppression. What we just saw that we are commanded to do, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, what we're commanded to do is being called oppression. Christians who evangelize are called ignorant, oblivious, misguided, and harassers. Make no mistake, if the worldview of critical theory takes hold in America, I would not be surprised if it becomes illegal to share your faith publicly. What God declares as good, in fact, what he commands is being spoken of as evil. Christians being spoken of as evil doers, just like Peter said. In Peter's day, there was widespread cultural opposition to the Christian way of life, no different. Christians were being disparaged as evil doers for obeying God. Peter doesn't encourage them to defend their reputation with mere words. Rather, he urges them to pursue holiness, goodness. The slander of non-believers is to be answered with good works so that they would be apparent and admitted even by those who oppose us to the glory of God. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, from seeing, literally, they may see your good works, your good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Unbelievers are going to disparage and revile and criticize you for your faith. Peter knows you cannot prevent slander and gossip and all that. So what's his strategy in a world that's hostile to his faith? What he calls Christians to do is a consistent life of good works of righteous living that even non-believers are going to see and give glory to God for in the end. A Christian's good works might lead someone to Christ in salvation, not apart from the preaching of God's word, but in combination with it. Don't leave verse 9 behind where we're proclaiming the gospel. What's the point? Back up your talk with the credibility of your walk. Let your light shine. Let them see your good works so that they'll give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. 
Show your good works. Show the beauty and joy of a genuine Christian life. Guys, that means that non-believers need to know you and the way that you live. They gotta, they gotta have a close enough relationship with you that they can see your good works. They can see you living out your faith. Otherwise, if you withdraw from the world, you know what you've done? You've covered up your light with a basket. Why should we abstain from sinful desires? Why should we keep our conduct honorable? The answer is God's glory. God's going to be glorified by your good works. He's glorified by your obedience, period. But he's also going to get glory because non-believers are going to see it and they're going to glorify God. God made you his own so that you would make him known. You are God's people. You're not of the world. You don't follow the world. You follow Christ. You are his disciple. We do what he says because it's all about Jesus. It's just another way of saying it's all for his glory. So live for the, God, the glory of God as his treasured people. As God's people, we know that it's all about God. What remains for us is to live this out in our lives. Life's not about us. So we got to learn to live for the glory of God alone. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask and pray very simply that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would help us to put this into practice in our life. Help us to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.